Right, glad to have you joining with us uh, online there, whether you're on Facebook, on YouTube, on Twitter. Be sure to heart, to like, to share uh, on each one of those platforms there. Make some comments. Uh, that just fits their algorithms to say this is important to you and it would be important to your friends uh, to get that word out there. So I encourage you to take the time to do that. Also want to say welcome to those who are on our phone live streaming. Thank you for joining with us. Also, if you need that number, I'll be glad to give that to you. Uh, here in person uh, after the service, or you can call the church office sometime this week uh, and get that number from Miss Amy. Let me encourage you also, if you have access to our church website, uh, to go to highlandbaptistchurch.com. It's under the info tab uh, that you can download uh, the worship bulletin there, so be sure to get that downloaded there. A lot of upcoming activities. We have children's worship bulletins that are there also, so I encourage you to get those uh, downloaded. And then uh, those paper copies are in the window to my right. And then also don't forget prayer lists. If you need one of these in person, they're out here on the table across from the offices, so be sure to grab uh, one of those, or you can download it underneath that info tab there also. And then while you're there on the website, go to that far right-hand side, click the Give Online tab, and you can do your online giving there, uh, easy platform that's set up for you to do that, or you can give your offering uh, with your offering envelopes in front of you in the pew, in, in the plates down here uh, in front of you. So I encourage you to take the time uh, to do that. A couple of other things uh, before we go too far. I want to share with you Operation Christmas Child. Be sure to, uh, this week is collection week, so uh, there'll be some opportunities for you to serve. Encourage you to sign up if you can uh, down the hallway on the missions board uh, right next to Mr. P uh, Pastor Matt's office. Uh, if you'll sign up there, uh, there's all kinds of opportunities. They especially, as we mentioned this morning, are going to need some volunteers for a week from tomorrow. Uh, to help to load those cases onto the trailer, uh, onto the trailers. <laughs> and so I uh, want to encourage you to come and help, especially on those days, uh, if you can. Uh, it's a great sight over here to see all these shoe boxes, isn't it? We're going to pray for these and all those that you're going to continue to bring throughout this week. Uh, so you can bring them Wednesday, you can bring them next Sunday. Encourage you to bring them by next Sunday night at the latest so that they can get uh, in those cases. Uh, but we'll be praying for them Sunday morning uh, during the service Sunday morning. We do have a few angel, angels left on the tree. Uh, out there. If you need some instructions, find me tonight after the service. I'll be glad to help you with that. If you're at home and will be in town this week, I encourage you to stop by Miss Amy. I'll show you what you need to do uh, there in getting one of those uh, angels off the tree. And there was one other thing I needed to share, and that's also about the processing center. Uh, we have two opportunities that are going to be coming up uh, for that. Uh, they're, they're out on the board here for you to be able to sign up. Uh, one is the Saturday after Thanksgiving. Uh, the following one is two weeks later than after that on a Saturday also. So both of the days we were able to get again this year were on Saturday. Sometimes we're only able to get them on Mondays or Tuesdays. I know of a church that got theirs on Thursday. Uh, so. It's a great opportunity for us on, on Saturday to be able to take more people uh, with us uh, to the Operation Processing Center uh, there in Atlanta. And I think that's all that I have. I was stalling for Ben <laughs> so that he could get back after turning these screens on up here. We had to reset those. So Brother Mike, if you'll come, maybe by the time you get up here, he'll be ready to switch some signs for Good evening. You've been sitting a while. Ben's standing, so why don't everybody else stand too? 
Let's stand and sing uh, hymn number 16, oh, Worship the King. You know the song that you were playing? Uh, usually a hymn references a scripture. Did you, did you pick that song because it referenced on that hymn? Because that's the exact song that it references in scripture that you played at the beginning. Well, it's just meant to be then. Hymn number 16, I'll Worship the King. issues this morning with the system and I think in resetting we switched something uh, in the reset there and so fixing those things uh, took us a little bit. So I want to encourage you to take your Bibles, turn to actually your bulletin says Genesis chapter 10, we're going there, uh, but I want to start in Genesis chapter 9. I've entitled this message tonight, A Family legacy and that's what we're going to see in Noah as now the the ark has settled they have left out of the ark uh, and began to settle uh, in the land and we're going to begin in chapter 9 uh, in verse 18 and verse 19 and we're going all the way through to the end of chapter 10. So let's stand as we read God's word in honor of his word verse 18 and verse 19 Genesis chapter 9. The sons of Noah who went forth from the ark were Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Ham was the father of Canaan. These three were the sons of Noah, and from these the people of the whole earth were dispersed. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we come to your word once again tonight, 
We know that your word is powerful. It is alive. It is sharper than any two-edged sword. And yet so often, Lord, when we read passages from the Old Testament, especially as we're going to see in chapter 10 uh, of uh, genealogy, we wonder what in the world does this have to do with me? And so, Father, I pray tonight that you would make even those parts of the passage become alive to us tonight. Help us to see the relevance and the importance for the things that we need to be doing in our lives, the lessons we need to learn from Noah and his family, and the legacy that he leaves behind. That we, ourselves, might leave a good legacy behind for our family. So bless your word tonight, and may you just touch us and speak to us in a powerful way tonight, especially to those who don't know Jesus as our Lord and Savior, that they would come to faith in him. And we ask these things in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. And amen. You can be seated. You know, if you're a reader of biographies or even autobiographies, then you probably regretted turning the page of a book and discovering uh, that there was a grinning skeleton lurking in the closet of someone that you admired. Uh, American columnist Russell Baker said this. He said, the biographer's problem is that he never knows enough, and the autobiographer's problem is that he knows too much. You know, when, but when God writes the story, he knows everything. He knows everything about everybody, and he always tells the truth, and he does it for our own good. This is one of those first places in the Bible, it's not the first, but one of those first, where we begin to see that <coughs> the Bible doesn't paint a rosy picture of those who are children of God, those who are part of the family of God. He just shows it how they are, warts and all. Uh, and so the history of Noah and his family now moves from the rainbows to the shadows. And in the shadows, we're going to see the shameful sins of a great man of faith. Uh, the president of a Bible college in Chicago often closed his public prayers with, and Lord, help us to end well. God answered that prayer for him, but not every believer now in heaven ended the race hearing God's words, well done. However, let's be generous and remember Paul's warning that says in 1 Corinthians chapter 10 and verse 12, Therefore let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. That's 1 Corinthians 10, 12. And so I want you to see first of all here this family tragedy. Here in these verses, the, the, the verses 18 and verse 19, if you will, are, are the index for the rest of the story. The main characters are listed here, Noah, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. And the main theme of this section is how Noah's family multiplied and scatters over the earth. You know, we often wonder about that. Where did all the peoples come from? Where did all the different ethnicities and, and nationalities come from? Uh, we find that out in the, this verses in the beginnings uh, of that dispersion there, the scattering over the whole earth. When we read this section today, we're often tempted to, to just skip over a passage uh, like this, this list of obscure names. But that doesn't minimize the importance of a passage like this. If it wasn't important, God wouldn't have inspired the, the authors to put it in the Word of God. Because there's many things that we don't know on a day-to-day, hour-to-hour account that happened in, in all of the biblical uh, characters' lives uh, that God didn't put in the Word of God. He put in the Word of God the things that we needed to know. And so there's a reason. 
reason that these, uh, this genealogy is in here for us to know and to understand, even with these obscure people who founded the nations that throughout the Bible history interacted with each other, and all of them are going to help accomplish God's purpose on this earth. The descendants of Shem are the people of Israel, and they played an especially important part uh, on the stage of history. But I want you to see some things here about this, this family tragedy that happens for Noah as we lead up into that genealogy. We see, first of all, disgrace in this family tragedy in verse 20 down through verse 21. It says, Noah began to be a man of the soil, and he planted a vineyard. He drank of the wine and became drunk and lay uncovered in his tent. So first of all, we see that in becoming a farmer, uh, Noah was following in the, the vocation of his father, Lamech. Uh, while the Bible doesn't, as we see here, he, he, was a, he owned a vineyard, he built a vineyard, he planted a vineyard, it began to grow, uh, it began to produce grapes. Uh, we find out in verse uh, 21 there that he drank of the wine of the juice there of those grapes that were fermented and became drunk and lay uncovered uh, in his tent. Now, the Bible condemns drunkenness. Uh, but it doesn't condemn the growing or eating of grapes or the drinking uh, of wine. Grapes, raisins, wine were important elements in the diet of the Eastern uh, peoples. In fact, Old Testament society, wine was considered a blessing from God and was even used with the sacrifices. Uh, this is the first mention, though, of wine in the Scripture. Uh, but winemaking was practiced uh, before the flood, and Noah certainly knew that what too much wine uh, would do to him. Uh, Noah had picked the grapes. Noah had crushed them uh, in some sort of wine press of some sort. Uh, he had put the juice into the skins, and he had waited uh, for the juice to ferment. Because if he had just taken grapes off the vine and eaten them, they wouldn't have made him drunk. If he had just taken the juice that had just been squeezed from those grapes, wouldn't have made him drunk. So he had to have fermented uh, this juice for it to come to the place to make uh, him drunk. Both his drunkenness and his nakedness that we find in these verses was disgraceful. And the two often go together. At least in this, in this case, Noah was in his own tent when this happened. He wasn't out in the public for everybody uh, to see. But when you consider who he was, uh, when you go back and read the descriptions of who he was back in the previous chapters, he was a preacher of righteousness. And what he had done, when you look at what he had done, he had saved his household from death. And so because of that, his sin becomes even more repulsive. I mean, it's one thing here to think about it this way. This is the kind of way we can think about it. It would be one thing for you to have a glass of wine. It'd be different for me to have a glass of wine. That would ruin my testimony uh, to others who would see me uh, doing that. And that's what we see here with Noah, of the position that he was, a preacher of righteousness, of what he had just done. Now, the Bible doesn't excuse the sins of saints, but mentions them as warnings to us not to do what they did. Here, Charles Spurgeon once said this. He said, God never allows his children to sin successfully. There's always a price to pay. Twice, you think about people in the Old Testament, twice Abraham had lied about his wife and said she was his sister. His son Isaac followed his bad example and did the same thing. 
Moses, you remember, he lost his temper and struck the rock instead of uh, doing what God said to speak to the rock. And as a result, he lost his privilege of entering into the promised land, into the holy land. You remember Joshua, Joshua jumped to conclusions and ended up defending the enemy uh, of God's people. Uh, David himself committed adultery. And he arranged to have Bathsheba's husband killed in battle. So not only does he commit adultery, he commits murder. And the sword plagues his family for years to come. Noah, when he went into his tent, didn't plan to get drunk. He didn't plan to shamelessly expose himself. But it happened just the same. The Japanese have an appropriate proverb. It says, first the man takes a drink, then the drink takes a drink, and then the drink takes the man. And that's so often true that the drink uh, begins to control us. And so that's why it's best to just stay away from it altogether. Keep as far away from sin uh, as you possibly can. And, and so we see here, uh, first of all, the disgrace. Then we see the disrespect in verse 22. Verse 22 says, And Ham, the father of Canaan, saw the nakedness of his father and told his two brothers outside. Now, first of all, Ham shouldn't have entered into his father's tent without an invitation. You ever had that? Your kids, they don't knock on the door, they just come busting right in. Kids do that all the time. Here's Ham, who's an adult young man, and he just throws open the tent doors and the tent uh, partitions there. He goes into the tent and, and sees his father. He doesn't wait uh, on an invitation. Uh, does he call for his father to receive an answer? Did he wonder if, if maybe Noah was sick and, and perhaps, or perhaps even dead? Did he even know that his father had been drinking wine? Those are questions that the text doesn't answer. And so it's useless for us to speculate on, on what happened in that particular aspect. But one thing is certain is that Ham was disrespectful to his father in what he did. Because think about it. If he had just peeked the curtain open to see, is dad breathing? Is dad covered? Is dad drunk? If he had just peeked the curtain open, he could have closed it back just like that and, and walked away. But that's not what he does. He was disrespectful in what he does to his father because think about this, how people respond to the sin and embarrassment of others is an indication of their own character. I mean, he could have peeked in, he could have quickly sized the situation up, he could have, he could have even seeing what had happened, went in and covered his father himself, saying nothing about the incident to anybody else. Instead, he seems to have enjoyed what he saw, gets a kick out of it, if you will, and then tells his two brothers about it in a rather disrespectful manner. Now, he may have even suggested that they go take a look for themselves. Uh, think about this. Now, Moses hadn't said yet in the Ten Commandments, honor thy father and your mother. Uh, in Exodus 20, verse 12. But surely that impulse and in, in that relationship with God uh, would have been natural to children uh, and should have been present in Ham's own heart. Why would a son show such disrespect to his father? Uh, even though Ham was the youngest of these three sons, maybe he was angry at his father because of something he didn't receive or, or some other reason. Uh, by what he did, though, we see that Ham reveals a weakness in his own character that would show up later in his own descendants. Thirdly, we see decency in verse 23. 
So it says, after he went out laughing to his brothers and telling them and uh, ridiculing them, gossiping to them about what his dad had done, gotten drunk, he's laying in there all uncovered. Why don't y'all go in there and look at him? Notice verse 23. Then Shem and Japheth took a garment, laid it on both their shoulders, and walked backward and covered the nakedness of their father. Their faces were turned backward, and they did not see their father's nakedness. So you could almost see that one standing over here, one standing over here, they've got a, a garment here holding it on their shoulders. They're walking backwards. They're keeping their focus this way. They're not even looking at dad. Maybe they see his feet as the garment begins to cover, and they begin to lay it down further and further until finally their father is covered. What an act of respect and decency that Shem and Japheth show in their love for their father by practicing what Proverbs 10 verse 12 says, love, love covers all offenses. What we know in the New Testament that 1 Peter 4 verse 8 says that love covers a multitude of sins. And so these brothers stood together, held this garment behind them, backed into the tent, their eyes looking elsewhere. They covered their father's naked body. Proverbs 17 verse 9 says, whoever covers an offense seeks love. Proverbs 12 verse 16 says, and a prudent man covers shame. Now understand this, love doesn't cleanse sin. Because only the blood of Jesus Christ can do that. Nor does love condone sin. Because love wants God's very best for others. But love does cover sin and doesn't go around exposing sin and encouraging others to spread the bad news also. When people sin, and we know about it, our first task ought to be to help to restore that person or those persons in a spirit of meekness. The New Testament tells us in the book of Galatians in chapter 6, and verse 1 through verse 2, Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. Bear one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ. It's been said that, the, uh, that on the battlefield of life, so often Christians are prone to kick their wounded. And too often, that's true. But before we condemn others, we ought to better consider ourselves because all of us are candidates for conduct unbecoming of a Christian. Any single one of us could fall and stumble into sin. So we need to be careful. And so we see the family tragedy that happens in those verses. We come down through the end of chapter 9 and we see a family prophecy in verse 24 down through verse 29. So we're just going to read verse 24 to start with. It says, When Noah awoke from his wine and knew what his youngest son had done to him. So when Noah had awakened from his drunken stupor, he's, he's probably ashamed of what he's done, but he's also surprised to find himself covered by a garment. Where did this come from? Naturally, he probably begins to wonder what happened in the tent while he was asleep. The logical thinking would be to speak to Japheth, who's his firstborn, and, and he and Shem uh, would have told him what Ham uh, had done. These words are Noah's only recorded speech found in all of the Scripture. 
It's too bad that this brief speech has been misunderstood and many times labeled uh, a curse because what Noah said is more like a, a father's prophecy concerning his children and his grandchildren. The word curse is, only, is used only once, but notice who it's directed at. It's not directed at Ham who did the committing of the sin. Uh, of, of, uh, of all this that we see going on here, making fun of his dad and being disrespectful uh, to his dad. It's not directed directly towards Ham. It's directed to his youngest son, Canaan, and not at Ham himself. And so this suggests that Noah was describing the future of his sons, of, of Ham's sons, and, and one grandson on the basis of what he saw in their character, not unlike what Jacob did before he died. And so let's look at those kids, those individuals there, and see uh, what, what is represented uh, in each one of them. We see Canaan, uh, the youngest son here, who represents enslavement. And so verse 25 says, he said, Cursed be Canaan, a servant of servants shall he be to his brothers. Now if Noah had wanted to pronounce a curse, it, it would have been directed at Ham the son who committed the sin against his father. But instead, we said, he names Canaan uh, three times in these verses. It was a principle in later Jewish law that the children couldn't be punished for their sins of their fathers. Deuteronomy 24, 16, Jeremiah 31, verse 29 to 30, Ezekiel 18, verse 1 through verse 4, and other passages. It's likely, though, that this principle applied even in these days. Uh, and so looking down through the centuries, Noah predicts three times that the descendants of Canaan would become the lowest of servants. Now the Canaanites are listed in Genesis chapter 10 in that genealogy. In Genesis 10, verse 15 down to verse 19. And they are the very nations the Israelites conquer and whose land they inhabited. So all that came from Ham. Remember the Canaanites that they go into the promised land to overcome? All of those came from Ham. Uh, and, and so it, it's, it's difficult to describe the, really the moral decay of the Canaanite society, especially their religious practices. If you look at Leviticus 18, it'll give you some idea of how they lived. Uh, they were very ungodly. Uh, they were worshiping all kinds of false idols. They were offering all kinds of ungodly sacrifices. And God warns the Jews when they come into the promised land, don't you even compromise with the Canaanite way of life and to destroy everything in your household that would tempt you in that direction. Two misconceptions we need to clear up because so often uh, we've seen this in past history. Uh, first, the descendants of Ham were not the members uh, of a black race. That's not where the black race uh, came from. People did move to different areas of the world, and we do see uh, because of that, uh, there, there's a whole thing we could go through with, with what happens when you're closer to the equator with darker skin. You look all around the equator of the earth, and you're going to see people who have darker skins. Uh, and, and that just was a result of moving uh, to those areas. You move further north, uh, and you see, uh, like into Canada, uh, into Norway, into Sweden, into those areas, you see more pale skin. Uh, and so uh, there, that's the reason for the different colorations. Uh, Caucasian was no basis in this so-called curse of Canaan, uh, and, and it was no uh, curse for slavery. Uh, in fact, this passage, I uh, took a class when I was in Bible college on Civil War preaching, and this passage was used many times to preach pro-slavery. 
Uh, and so uh, that's not what this passage is all about. Second, in spite of their evil ways, some of these Hamitic peoples, people of Ham, built large and advanced civilizations, including the Babylonians, they come from this descendant, Assyrians, and Egyptians. In one sense, we can say that the descendants of Ham served the whole world through the ideas and implementations that they discovered and developed. So that is Ham's descendants with Canaan there. Then you come to Shem in verse 26. Verse 26, he also said, Blessed be the Lord, the God of Shem, and let Canaan be his servant. So notice what happens here. Noah does not bless Shem. He blesses the Lord, the God of Shem. Notice again what it says. Verse 26, blessed be the Lord, the God of Shem, and let Canaan be his servant. So in so doing, Noah is giving glory to God for what he will do with the descendants of Shem. Noah acknowledged before his sons that whatever Shem possessed would be God's gift, and whatever blessing Shem brought into this world in the future would be because of the grace of God. Now, Shem is the descendant, the ancestor, if you will, of Abraham, who's the founder of the Hebrew nation. So Noah was talking about those descendants through Abraham, the Jewish people. That promise was given to Abraham that the Lord would enrich the Jewish people spiritually, as we're going to see when we get over to Genesis 12, uh, in verse 1 to verse 3 over there. And later, it's explained by Paul in Romans chapter 3 and chapter 9. It's through Israel that we have the knowledge of the true God. It's through Israel that we have the Messiah, the Savior of the world. It's through Israel that we have the written word of God. It is through Israel that Jesus was born in Bethlehem of the tribe of Judah. And so in Hebrew, the name Shem means name. And it's the people of Israel who have preserved the name of the Lord. Now that doesn't mean that every person who's an Israelite, every person who's a Jewish person has done that. In general is what it's talking about here of the nation and the people's of Israel. That's what they were called to. And we're to, those who bless Israel will be blessed, and those who curse Israel will be cursed. And so Shem, he was Noah's second born son. Now, you may not get that in the reading of the passage here in Genesis 9, verse 24. It indicates that in chapter 10, verse 21, it does. So you can look at some further study there on that. But whatever the three sons, wherever the three sons are listed, Shem's name is always the first one. It's another instance in Genesis of the grace of God elevating the secondborn to the first to the place of the firstborn, uh, because every time you see the names, most of the times anyway, is Shem, Ham, and Japheth, and we know Ham was the youngest, so it's not listed in a in a chronological order of who was oldest, who's middle, who's youngest, uh, and so that's what we see here. Well, seeing that and seeing that grace of God elevating the secondborn to the place of the firstborn, remember, God chose Abel instead of Cain. Cain was the firstborn. That's in Genesis chapter 4. He chose Isaac instead of Ishmael, who was, Ishmael was the firstborn, uh, he, but yet he chose Isaac. Uh, when, when you look at Isaac's sons, he chose Jacob instead of Esau, and Jacob was the secondborn. 
Uh, and Paul talks about all this in Romans chapter 9. And so it's just a picture of God's grace in choosing that secondborn uh, to, to represent the place of the firstborn. And then we come to Japheth. Japheth represents enlargement. Look at verse 27. Here, here's what Noah says to Japheth or says about Japheth. He says, may God enlarge Japheth and let him dwell in the tents of Shem and let Canaan be his servant. So understand who, who Japheth is. Japheth is the ancestor of what we generally call the Gentile nations. Uh, we have here a play on words because in the Hebrew, uh, the name Japheth is very close to the word that means to enlarge. And so you think about the, the, the children of Ham, uh, they built large civilizations in the east. Uh, the Semites, who were the descendants of Shem, uh, they settled in the land of Canaan and the surrounding territory. But the descendants of Japheth, they spread out much farther than that, uh, much farther than their relatives and even reached what we know as Asia Minor and, and Europe. Uh, they were the people who would multiply and move into new territory. But uh, while the descendants of Japheth were successful in their conquests, notice what it says. When it came to things spiritual, they were always going to have to depend on Shem. Whose tents would they have to be under? Shem. What he's talking there about is, is spiritually. God is the God of Shem, and the descendants of Japheth would find God in the tents of Shem. And so Israel was chosen by God to be the light of the world to the Gentiles, Isaiah 42, 6, 49, 6, uh, because salvation is of the Jews, as John tells us in his gospel. You know, it's sad to say that for the most part, the nation of Israel has failed to witness to the Gentiles that they might believe in the true and living God. In fact, in, in the Old Testament days and even into the New Testament days and even into today, and so when Jesus came to earth, it was Jesus who brought the light uh, to the Gentiles uh, and, and the disciples in the early church carried that light to the nations. Uh, the descendants of Noah's three sons were represented even in the early church. Uh, you remember the Ethiopian eunuch? He was an Ethiopian treasure, uh, treasurer. Uh, he was a descendant of Ham, Acts chapter 8, 26. Paul was a Jew, was a Jew so he would have been a descendant of Shem. Uh, in Acts chapter 9. A and Cornelius and his family in Acts chapter 10, they were descendants of Japheth, the, the Gentile nations. A and so Noah, uh, we find out, lives uh, another uh, three and a half centuries. We read in verse 28, after the flood, Noah lived 350 years. All the days of Noah were 950 years, and he died. So we have every reason, there's nothing that indicates or tells us otherwise, that Noah uh, lit, walked with God and served God faithfully. As far as the record is concerned, this is the only time we know of that he fell uh, in, in, a, in a way like this. Now we all sin, but this was a, a big deal here uh, in this respect. And he certainly repented and the Lord forgave him. You know, in our walk with God, we climb the hills and sometimes we descend into the valleys. Sometimes it's up in our life spiritually and sometimes we're down. Alexander White used to say, the victorious Christian life is a series of new beginnings. And that is so true. But there's one other thing I want you to see from this passage tonight. And it comes in the rest of this in chapter 10, 
verse 1 down to verse 32, I want you to see the family legacy that Noah leaves behind. This chapter is known as the table of nations. It's, it's unique in the records uh, of ancient history because the purpose of this chapter is given at the beginning in verse 1 and at the end in verse 32. So let's just look at those two verses and see what's the purpose of all this genealogy stuff. So verse 1 says, These are the generations of the sons of Noah, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Sons were born to them after the flood. And then turn over to verse 32. These are the clans of the sons of Noah, according to their genealogies in their nations. And from these, the nations spread abroad on the earth after the flood. The whole reason and the whole purpose of this chapter is given to explain how the earth was repopulated after the flood by the descendants of these three sons of Noah. Now, you can look at another place in the Old Testament that you'll find a similar, it's not identical, but list uh, in 1 Chronicles chapter 1. But here's a caution for us as we look at this, because before we look at some of the details of this part of the chapter here, and then try to draw some spiritual lessons from it, we need to also heed some warnings. Because first, this listing is not a typical genealogy that gives only the names of the descendants. Uh, the writer reminds us here that the ancient peoples had their own clans and languages, their own territories and their own nations. Uh, that's seen in verse 31. And in other words, this is a genealogy plus an atlas plus a history book. So it's all of that wrapped up into one. Uh, we're watching the movement of people and nations in the ancient world. So, so this listing is not a typical genealogy. Uh, this listing also is not complete. For example, you don't find anything about Edom. You don't find anything about Moab. You don't find anything about Ammon mentioned. And yet those are important nations in biblical history also. The fact that there are 70 nations that are listed here suggests that this arrangement may be deliberately artificial, that it's not the entire list, because that was an approach that was used oftentimes in writing uh, such kind of listings. You think about uh, there are 70 persons in Jacob's family when they went to Egypt. You see that in Genesis 46 and verse 27, Exodus 1 verse 5. Uh, when you think about Jesus uh, and sending out the disciples uh, to go out, uh, he sends how many out? Seventy. He sends 70 out to preach the word in Luke chapter 10 and verse 1. And so it is somewhat of a construct in that sense that he's using 70 there to emphasize, we know the number 7 and the number 10 represent fullness, completion in the Bible, uh, and that 10 representing that it's multiplied uh, there. And so uh, that's what we see, that it's, a, it's not a complete list, but it is completeness in what we need to understand and know. Third, it's difficult to identify some of the nations. So this is another warning here for us as we go through this list. It's difficult to look at all these nations and then try to give them a modern-day name. Well, this we know is this nation. We know this is this nation. Some we do, some we don't. But over the centuries, nations can change uh, their names, move to different locations, modify their language, even alter their racial composition through intermarriages and stuff. And so let's look at Japheth's descendants in verse 2 down through verse 5 in chapter 10. So 
we read in verse 2, the sons of Japheth, Gomer, Magog. Now, how many of you ever read in the book of Revelation and you read in Ezekiel about Magog, the prophecies about Magog? So just there's your first reference of it. The sons of Japheth, Gomer, Magog, Madai, Javan, Tubal, Meshach, and Tyrus. The sons of Gomer, Ashenaz, Riftha, uh, Tograma. Uh, you may just want to say grasshopper on some of these if you don't know how to pronounce them. I don't know how to pronounce them, some of them. So, uh, The sons of Javan, Elishab, uh, Tarshish, heard that name, Kittim, and Dodanan. Remember Jonah who went down to Tarshish? Just throw that back in there. Number, and then verse 5, From these the coastland peoples spread in their lands, each with their own language by their clans in their nations. So in those verses, seven sons are named and seven grandsons from only two of the sons. Does this mean that the other five sons didn't have any children born to them? Or is it just another evidence of a selective approach to the person, the compiler who's writing under the leadership of the Holy Spirit? We don't know. But Japheth is the ancestor of the Gentile nations who located north and west of the land of Canaan. Uh, these would be the distant nations, the countries that represented the outer limits, if you will, of civilization for the average Old Testament Jew. Uh, and so that is Japheth's uh, descendants. You come down to verse 6, and you start to see Ham's descendants. Now remember, how were these listed before? Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Yet we start with Japheth, go to Ham, and we're going to wind up with Shem. You'll understand why when we get to Shem. So verse 6 says, uh, down through verse 20, it says, The sons of Ham, Cush, Egypt, Put, and Canaan. So this is the Canaanites, the ones who the Israelites go up against uh, when they come to conquer the land. The sons of Cush are Seba, Havilah, Sabtha, Ramah, uh, Sabetic, uh, the sons of Ramah, Sheba, and Dedan. Cush fathered Nimrod. He was the first on earth to be a mighty man. He was a mighty hunter before the Lord. Therefore, it is said, like Nimrod, a mighty hunter before the Lord. The beginning of his kingdom was Babel. Eric, Akkad, and Kalna in the land of Shinar. From, the land, from that land, he went into Assyria and built hmm, Nineveh. Rehoboth Ir, Kalah. And Resen between Nineveh and Kala, that is the great city. Egypt fathered Ludum and Anam and Lahabim and Naphathim, uh, Pathrasim, Kasluhim, uh, from whom the Philistines came, and Kaphtorim. Cana fathered Sidon, his firstborn, and Heth, and the Jebusites, the Amorites, and the Girgashites. Hmm, remember those. We come to those all throughout the Old Testament. Uh, and, and we also uh, remember uh, there about those uh, with, with Egypt uh, that we mentioned there. Uh, and so then you come down to verse 17. The Hivites, the Archites, the Sinites, the Arvidites, the Zimmerites, and the Hamathites. A lot of ites. <laughs> Afterward, the clans of the Canaanites dispersed. And the territory of the Canaanites 
expanded from Sidon in the direction of Gerar as far as Gaza. Modern day things going on in Gaza. And in the direction of Sodom, Gomorrah, Adma, and Zeboim as far as Lesha. So you saw a lot of names there under Ham who are the nations of the world there that is represented there in his descendants. Cush is ancient Ethiopia, not the modern nation. Uh, Mizraim is Egypt, Put maybe Libya. Uh, we've already touched on the peoples of Cana, the descendants of Ham located in the areas that we identify today as Egypt, as Palestine, as the Sudan, as Saudi Arabia, modern day Saudi Arabia, Yemen would also be in that area. At this point in the listing, notice there's a parenthesis that's given to us to discuss this famous man named Nimrod, who's the founder of a great empire uh, there in verse 8 down through verse 12. He's mentioned because the nations he founded play an important part in the history of Israel because one of them is Babel. That's going to be looked at in the next section. In some versions, Nimrod is called a mighty one in the earth, a mighty hunter before the Lord, as we see here. Uh, the word translated mighty there refers to a champion, somebody who's superior in strength and courage. It's translated mighty men in 1 Kings uh, chapter 1, verse 8 and verse 10, when it's looking at David and his special bodyguards that he had. They're called mighty men. So it's not that they're some superhuman men. It's not they're some different race that's a super race or something. Uh, they're just special, um, mighty in strength and, and in courage. Uh, the image of Nimrod in the text isn't that necessarily of a, of a sportsman who's hunting game. It's rather that of a tyrant who's ruthlessly conquering men and establishing an empire. He builds four cities in Shinar uh, and four more in Assyria. Uh, Shinar is... Babylon, Babylonia. Uh, both Babylon and Assyria become enemies of Israel, but in that, even in that, God uses them to bring uh, discipline upon his disobedient people. So God is still in control even over these Gentile nations. We're going to learn about more about Babylon later. And then we come to Shem's descendants in verse 21 down through verse 31. So verse 21 says, to Shem also, the father of all the children of Eber, the elder brother of Japheth, children were born. The sons of Shem, Elam, Asher, uh, Arphaskad, Lud, and Aram. The sons of Aram, Uz, Uz, uh, Hul, Gether, and Mash. Uh, Arpachshad fathered Shelah, and Shelah fathered Eber. To Eber were born two sons. The name of the one was Peleg. For in his days the earth was divided, and his brother's name was Joktan. Joktan fathered uh, Almadad, uh, Shelef, and Zarmaveth, uh, Jera, uh, Hadaram, Uzal, Dikla, Obal, Abamel, Sheba, uh, and then verse 29, Ophic, Havilah, and Jobab. All these were the sons of Joktan. Uh, and so you come on down to verse 30, it says, The territory in which they lived extended from Mesha in the direction of Sephar to the hill country of the east. These are the sons of Shem by their clans, their languages, their lands, and their nations. Now, we said this a moment ago, that Shem, in all of the lists that we see of the three sons of Noah, is always the first that's mentioned. But he's listed the last in this narrative. Why is that? 
is because he's the most important for the rest of the biblical story. Uh, we, we're going to move right into the story of Babel and, and then into the genealogy of Abraham who descends from Shem. Five sons are mentioned, but the emphasis is on the family uh, of our fox said uh, because he was the grandfather of Eber, verse 24, uh, and Abraham, the father of the Hebrew nation, comes from that line of Eber, and his story is going to begin in chapter 12. There's another parenthesis in the list, and we find that in verse 25, to discuss the dividing of the earth during the days of Peleg, which means division. And so that's probably referring to the dividing, the dispersing of the nations described in chapter 11. Uh, some think that maybe this division is a special dividing of the continents and the rearranging of the land masses. Could be either one. Uh, we don't know in particular. We do know that the land masses were formed uh, during the flood, uh, and so the platonic plates could have shifted in that time to form those different continents uh, with the waters that had come up and the waters that had come down receding uh, into those uh, crevices and deep places uh, to form the oceans and to form the rivers and to form uh, the lakes. So what is all the significance of all this? So the list of genealogy. This list of names and places carries with it some important theological truths, not the least of which is this, that Jehovah God is the Lord of the nations. Doesn't matter if they're the pagan nations, doesn't matter if they're the Jewish nation, uh, doesn't matter who they are, God is the Lord of the nations. God gave the nations their inheritance in Deuteronomy 32 verse 8. And as Acts 17 verse 26 says, he determined the times before uh, appointed and the bounds of their habitation. So in spite of people like Nimrod, uh, who were ruthless in, in conquering and ruthless in, in, in overcoming people. Uh, God is the God of geography and of history. He's the one who's in control. And, and what, prom what God promises, God performs. God always keeps his word. And so Noah's prophecy about his sons comes true. And so that's the first thing that we need to acknowledge and to recognize is that God is the Lord of the nations. Secondly, in spite of all those external differences between all of those different descendants, all the nations belong to the same human family. You can trace everybody back. If you were to chase a genealogy and could trace a genealogy of records all the way back, you could trace it all the way back to Noah and his wife. Then you could trace it all the way back from there before the flood all the way back to Adam and to Eve. So it starts here at Adam and Eve, comes to the flood, reduces down to Noah and his wife, and then expands out again. So they're all part of the same human family. God made us all of one blood, as Acts 17, 26 says. And no race and no people can claim to be superior to any other race or any other people. Because while in his providence, God has permitted some nations uh, to make greater progress economically and, and politically than other nations, their achievements don't prove that they're better than others. Proverbs 22, verse 2 says this, The rich and the poor meet together. The Lord is the maker of them all. So that's the second point, that all nations belong to the human, same human family. What else do we learn? What's the significance of this genealogy? Third is that God has a purpose for all the nations to fulfill you think, Russia, Iran, 
Assyria? How does God have a purpose for those nations to fulfill? Well, the account in Genesis 9, 24 through eleven thirty two 32 makes it very clear that God has chosen, uh, God's chosen nation was Israel. From chapter 12 on, we're going to read that Israel is going to be the center stage in the narrative. But God is going to use Egypt. He's going to use Babylon. He's going to use Assyria. He's going to use the Medo-Persians. He's going to use the Romans to accomplish his purposes with reference to the Jewish people. Understand this, and you see this all throughout the history of the Old Testament, that God can use pagan rulers like Nebuchadnezzar and Cyrus and Darius and even Augustus Caesar. So God has a purpose for the nations, for all the nations to fulfill. Fourthly, God is concerned for all the nations. Now frequently in the book of Psalms, you'll find the phrase, all you lands or all you nations, Psalm 61, uh, verse 66, verse 1 to verse 8, Psalm 67. Both of those express a universal vision that all the nations of the earth would come to know God and serve him. So, so the gospel message isn't just for the Jewish people. It's for the whole world. Jesus didn't come and die on the cross just for God's chosen people. He came that, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have eternal life. And so us as the church, our great commission is to go into all the world. And, and that isn't some New Testament afterthought. It's written into the very fabric of the Old Testament story. And then finally, what's written in Genesis 9 through 10 must have been an encouragement to the people of Israel when they went into the promised land, when they conquered Canaan. Because here's what they knew. They knew going in, they were God's chosen people. They knew that the Canaanites would be their servants. How did they know that? Because it was a promise, of, uh, uh, the, the message that was given here and the prophecy that Noah says about Ham's descendants, about Canaan, that they would be the servants of the others. And so they also knew, they also knew that their God was the Lord of the nations and, and could do whatever he wanted to with those nations. Uh, the, the, the conquest, the overtaking of Canaan what was a victory of faith in God's promises. They had heard God's promises. They believed God's promises, which explains why God told Joshua, meditate on the word of God because it's in the word of God that you find the promises of God. So Noah's three sons, they weren't perfect. They left a mixed legacy to the world. But the Lord of the nations was still in charge, and history is still his story. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word tonight. What an encouragement to us that as we see the turmoil that is going on around us in our world, Sometimes we wonder, Lord, how could this possibly be? And yet we have seen throughout the Old Testament how you used pagan nations, nations that didn't believe in you as the one true and living God, to bring about your purpose and your will upon your people, whether that was the nation of Israel or whether that's now the church. 
And so, Father, I pray that you would help us to understand these truths that we've just seen and and the significance for uh, this genealogy, that we wouldn't just glance over a genealogy like this, but that we would dig further into your word to, to see what does all of this have to speak to me and what an encouragement it is to us to know that in the face of the chaos of this world, you're still in control. You're the God of all the nations. You love all the nations, and you want all the nations to come to trust in Jesus as our Lord and their Savior. You've commissioned us as the church to go and share that gospel message with the world around us. And so, Father, if there's someone who's here tonight or listening online who's never trusted by faith in Jesus as their Lord and Savior, may they call out to you seeking forgiveness of their sins, repenting of their sins, turning away from it, and turning to follow you. Have your way in their heart and in their life. Lord, for us as the church, give us encouragement, Lord, to trust your word, to be in your word, studying your word, learning about the promises in your word, so that when those difficult days come, and they will, help us to be prepared, help us to be as ready as we can, knowing, Lord, that we can always go back to your word and the promises that you've given to us. That if we trust by faith in Jesus as our Lord and Savior, what can man do to me? Because to be absent in the body is to be present with you. And so, Lord, help us to live with that kind of boldness in our hearts and in our lives. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. As we stand, as we sing our hymn of invitation number 285, as the Lord lays on your heart, will you come as you're at home? Would you join us too?